Thank you, worship team, for leading us in songs of praise, and appreciate the truths in those songs, and um, that uh, just reminding us again the desire to, to worship God in spirit and in truth, that we would magnify his name all our days, all our days. Uh, love it. Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look in Isaiah chapter 58 this morning, Isaiah 58. And uh, I'll read the text uh, in the sermon this morning. So let's go, Lord, in prayer, and let's look at right into this text. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your word, and we thank you that you give us your word, uh, that we might uh, have it open it, that we might read it, uh, that your spirit might help us to understand it, and Lord, that your spirit would convict us of our own lives and where we may need to repent, where we may need to turn from our own sins and Turn to you in obedience. Thank you for your word that reveals to us your own heart, who you are. And Father, we pray that as we continue our time of worship in the study and hearing of your word, may we do so with uh, thankfulness and joy and delight because we are hearing from you, our creator and our God, our maker, and our savior and our Lord. Thank you for your word. Give you thanks for all that you are going to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In John chapter 4, Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman about worship. And, uh, and then we read those verses in our uh, scripture uh, call to worship this morning. And Jesus told her about an hour that is coming when neither in the mountain that they were on nor uh, Jerusalem, the, the mountain in Jerusalem, the temple mount, where they would worship the Father. And he talks to her, encourages, teaches her about where salvation comes from. The genuine true worship begins with the Jews because salvation is from the Jews. And then he says in verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus revealed to this woman, this Samaritan woman, this amazing truth that God is seeking people to be his worshipers. God is searching for those who would worship him. And this truth is, a, is a, just a, a, such a major truth in the Bible. It's a, it is a verse that tells, explains even why we continue to remain on earth after we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have this calling to, to, from God to not only uh, to worship him, but to call others and to share with others how they might know him and how they might become these worshipers that God the Father seeks. The key idea of, this, of worship here is that we, they would worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus mentions it twice. God is seeking out true worshipers who would worship the Father in spirit and truth. It reveals to us, and if you remember the Gospels, that, that Jesus often encountered those who were worshiping God outwardly, but were, in fact, not true worshipers. Uh, they were false worshipers. They were fake worshipers. 
Of course, it wasn't the first time in the nation of Israel that the nation as a whole, particularly the religious leaders, were leading the nation in fake worship. In the days of Isaiah, in our text this morning, the Israelites of Isaiah's day were also guilty of false hypocritical worship. Outwardly, they went through the motions. They appeared to be worshiping God, but inwardly, their hearts were far away from him. Back in the first chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, particularly verses 10 to 17, the Lord had condemned Israel for their hypocritical worship. And now we see that theme that was introduced in chapter 1 become a theme that is reintroduced, or God returns to here in chapter 58, at the very beginning of this final section of the book. Chapters 58 to 66 form for us the final section of the book of Isaiah. In this latter half, 40 through 66, God has been comforting the nation Israel through the promise of, the, first of all, the coming deliver, uh, first of all, the, the deliverance from Babylonian captivity, then the promise of the deliverer to save from sin, and now in this section, the promise of the coming deliverer to judge the world of its sin. We could also entitle this last uh, nine chapters as the future glory of the coming Messiah. For the word glory is revealed and uh, mentioned many times. So if the Lord is coming to judge the world, if that's going to be a source of comfort, if God is going to come to judge the world of its sin, then Israel must be sure to not be in sin. That they must make sure that they themselves have repented of their sin, lest she too be judged along with the world. As worshipers of God today, who know that and are going to learn about the future coming of the Deliverer, the Messiah, to judge the world, we too would be wise to examine our lives to make sure that we are not living in sin, sin that God would come to judge. As we look to the Word of God this morning, well, I pray that it would cause us to examine our own worship, examine even what we're doing right now, what we're doing today, lest we discover, and it would be a joy if we would discover that and to turn from it, if that we, in fact, what we thought was worship was actually a false worship, hypocritical worship, fake worship. You see, a person who attends these worship services weekly, praying, singing, greeting one another, giving to the Lord even, listening to a sermon or serving in the worship services, can be a person that's still guilty of fake worship. And hopefully... uh, we'll see that fake worship is something that's subtle. There are certainly overt ways of false worship, but today's passage teaches us about the subtle characteristics of fake worship. As an outline for us this morning, we're going to look at three subtle characteristics of fake worship that God rebukes. He rebukes the nation Israel, and through this passage this morning, I hope that if the Lord wills, that it would rebuke us as well. All right, so three Subtle characteristics of fake worship. Let's take a look at these three subtle characteristics. Number one, first of all, the first is that fake worship rests upon outward rituals. Fake worship rests upon outward rituals. In verses 1 to 5, verse 1 of chapter 58 gives us the setting. God is speaking to Isaiah. Cry loudly. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. And declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Isaiah is instructed here to not hold back. 
He is to loudly proclaim. He is to declare to God's people. He is to declare to the house of Jacob, to Israel. These words, God's words are directed to the Israelites in Isaiah's day. That's the setting. And what is he to declare? He is to declare to them their transgression and their sins. So God is not holding back. God is not holding back. You know, uh, how often do you, does someone just come out to you and tell you your transgressions and sins? Most of us are full of pride, and it's hard to take and someone coming alongside and telling us our transgressions and sins. But here is God coming alongside Israel, telling Isaiah to reveal to them, declare to them loudly, don't hold back. This is your transgression. This is your sin. What is Israel guilty of that would require such a bold charge from God to Isaiah? But whatever it is, the implication is that Isaiah, in his human nature, would somehow be tempted to hold back. God has to tell him to not hold back. That it's something that he might be tempted to speak faintly, to kind of approach uh, really uh, in, a, in a hesitant way. <clears throat> it is perhaps sin that man would want to simply brush aside, to overlook, to diminish, because it's just a, in our minds, maybe it's just a little thing. But it's not with God. All sin is not little in God's eyes. For as we know, all sin would require the death and the and death of his son on the cross for our sins. Verses 2 to 5 reveals this sin that, that uh, Israel is guilty of. <clears throat> Verse 2. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Now, that's just a little bit unexpected, isn't it? Uh, I don't see any sin here. Do you? Israel is seeking God daily. They delight to know God's ways. They have done righteousness. They have not forsaken the ordinance of God. They ask for justice. They delight in the nearness of God. Well, these are all things that are good. This sounds like a good thing. If you found a church like this, you would leave Esababa to go join it. But you're not going to find such a church. Yet a church or a nation or, that does these things outwardly, all of these things outwardly, can be guilty of sin against God and be completely blind to that sin. It's why Israel asks, in, as the passage continues in verse 3, why God does not take notice of their worship. Look at the first part of verse 3. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? See, Israel had, in their worship, fasted. They had taken on a posture of humility. They had humbled themselves. And they were wondering why God did not hear them. No, that's not it. They wondered why God did not see them, notice them. God, don't you see I'm fasting? God, don't you see I'm humbling myself? Here's the first clue that Israel was focused or was resting on outward rituals. They were appealing to what they were doing outwardly, that God would notice them and therefore respond. Fasting, of course, was the practice of restraining from food in order to focus on prayer. Sometimes it would be accompanied by the wearing of, of worn clothing like sackcloth 
It would be involved in sitting in ashes as a sign of humility. And the Israelites thought that by fasting, God would see it and he would bless them. He would see that he would notice, oh, look at my people. They're fasting. They're, they're wearing sackcloth. They're ashes. I will bless them. They had, Israel had equated outward ritual with genuine worship. But it is not. God calls out their fake worship. Look at verse, uh, the rest of verse 3 and into verse 5. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed? And for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed, will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? God condemns their worship. Because while outwardly fasting, outwardly maybe appearing to do the right things and worshiping God and doing so, they turn around on that very same day to treat their fellow neighbors, others, poorly, sinfully. God's word is specifically addressed to those who are employers, those who are bosses, those who are managers, supervisors, those who oversee a group of people. These are maybe landowners who had a lot of servants. And he condemns them for in seeking their own desire on the day of worship. They, in fact, also, on the other hand, exploited their workers. They may have rested, but they made their workers not rest. They likely also fasted. They were fasted for their own selfish motives. They're fasting for their own profits, for their own productivity. They're praying that their harvest would be plentiful, that their business would be successful. They drove their employees hard, leading to contention, strife, and even uh, fist fighting, fighting. And this was hypocritical before the Lord to pray to God for success in one's business and then to turn around and sin against their fellow man. Verse 5 is, is a key verse as it, in this uh, chapter as it parallels verse 6. You'll notice the wording is very similar. It asks, in both verses, it asks a rhetorical question, a similar rhetorical question. Is this the kind of fast that God chooses? That is, is this the kind of fast that God's looking for, that God's looking for to bless? That's the question. What Israel was doing, here they were, they were outwardly, they were not restraining for food. They were praying to God. They were dressed appropriately. They were in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what God chooses? Is this acceptable to the Lord? Does God want the Israelites to simply fast and outwardly humble themselves the whole day by bowing their head and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Does he want them to simply sit there and listen quietly as a man speaks for 45 minutes about the word of God and then bow our heads at the end and pray and then walk out the doors and make sure you greet maybe one or two people? Is that what God wants? Is that an acceptable day to him? God's answer, implied answer to this rhetorical question is no. For outward rituals do not please God if they are motivated by selfishness, as it was here for these these Israelites, and accompanied with sin. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were guilty of the same thing. They too were focused on outward rituals while sinning against their fellow man. One day they 
They criticized Jesus for not ceremonially washing his hands before eating. Remember that? They criticized his disciples for the same thing. And they called out, called Jesus out for their sin. But the Lord said to him, uh, but the Lord said to the Pharisee, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. Jesus knew their heart. Outwardly, they did all the things to, to observe their, their Sabbath day, to honor God in their hearts. But inside, he says, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You are cheating your fellow man. See, God is not as concerned with your outward rituals as he is with your inward obedience to him. Observance to outward forms of worship without the inward reality of a right relationship with God and others is fake worship. We're not saying, God is not saying that outward rituals is wrong. Much of what he asks of us involves some kind of outward ritual. Even when we do not forsake the gathering of, uh, of together to, for worship, encouragement, it involves us coming to here together at one particular place to worship God. That's an outward ritual to some. And when we take communion, when we, take, when we observe baptism, those are rituals, all of which involves God, God's commands. But if we do those things, for instance, if we take the Lord's table, uh, the Lord's uh, communion with sin in our heart, God is not outward. Though outwardly, we may do it all correctly, but God is evaluating us. He does not look at the outward appearance of man. He looks at the inward, the heart, and he will discipline us. First Samuel 15, 22 says so much. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. God is more concerned about your obedience, obedience to his commands. When Jesus summarized the greatest commandment, he said it was what? It was to love the Lord your God. And when he added, he didn't even, they didn't ask for the second greatest command, but Jesus added it because he knew it was tied in together with it. Love, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments rest the law and the prophets. See, the Israelites were guilty of saying that they love God, but it stopped right there. They loved God alone. They outwardly expressed their love for God, even observing his outward rituals while failing to keep the rest of the commandments to love their neighbors. They were resting on the outward rituals of their love for God, but it really wasn't a love for God. Because it wasn't resulting in a love for their neighbors. That's the, th- subtle, that's the first subtle characteristic of fake worship. Fake worship rests on outward rituals alone. That is, we, put our, we think that that is what will please God. That's what's going to get God to, to, to bless us. We might even be thinking that's what gets God to save us. That's far from the truth. Outward rituals, even as a part of our worship, are a flow of our, our response to God, the blessings that we've received from him. Second subtle characteristic of fake worship is found in verse 6 through 12. That is, fake worship neglects to love others. This is just a continuation of this thought. It's the other side of the coin of focus on outward rituals and focusing instead on, uh, and, and while neglecting the loving of others. Verse 6 is a parallel to verse 5 that we're going to read here. 
And in verse 6 to 7, God reveals the kind of fasting that he does choose. Here's the kind of outward ritual that God does look to. Verse 6 to 7, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bond of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God here is, is made very clear. He does not forbid fasting. He's not against outward rituals. But he looks, he looks for it. He does look for a certain kind of fast. And he looks for a fasting that is accompanied by deeds that reflect a love for others. Verse 6 tells us that love for others is seen in loosening the bonds of wickedness, undoing the bands of the yoke. See, love helps set people free from oppression. When you see people that are caught up in in abusive situations or oppressed by by others, you want to do what you can to help set them free. Love for others seeks to help those who face injustice and abuse. Verse 7, love for others is seen in helping the needy. It's to share with those who are in need, to food with the hungry, a house with the homeless, clothes with the naked, and to not hide, to not be like Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, where both the the priest and the Levite come by, and they they see it, and they they walk around. So I, I didn't see that. Walk right by. These commands... To love and help others, to love others by helping the needy, or it was something we already saw back in chapter one, where Isaiah chapter one verse seventeen says, "Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow." Unless you are, uh, unless you start thinking, "Oh, that's just for Israel." God wants Israel to do that. Let's not forget that James uh, writes also to the church, New Testament church. These words, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here is a compelling challenge to all our faith. If we say that we worship God and love God, then do we also love our neighbor whom God created in his image? It's not just strangers on the street, but also the saints in the church do we love. How do you show love to your neighbor? See, worship that loves Others is worship that God approves and blesses. And for the worship that loves others is a reflection of a worship that truly loves God. And God blesses this kind of worship. He proves it. He blesses it, first of all, with his nearness. He rewards. And the, and the rest of this uh, section, 8 through 12, kind of reveal the blessings of of. of uh, that God has for this kind of fast. Then, he says, verse 8, your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go, both, go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. Isn't that wonderful? You know, when you worship God in this way, when you worship God with a, a genuine love for him that reflects in a love for others, you can have the certainty, the blessing of knowing that when you call out to God, God will say, here I am. I'm near. I'm with you. God's light is going to break out in your life like dawn. You just think about just when you're in darkness, how, how valuable it is 
when you just see that little bit of light, and we see the, the light starting to shine, dawn is approaching. He will speed your recovery. He will, uh, you will have a, a good reputation. That is, your rights will precede you, will pave the way for you. God will be your rear guard in the sense that he'll protect you. Your prayers will be answered all because he will be near you. He is near those who worship him. These are the kind of people that God seeks to worship him. God now specifically calls the Israelites to repentance in the latter half of verse 9 and 10. He calls them to repent now. He says, if you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. The Israelites have been guilty of oppression, malicious gossip, selfish greed, no compassion, in fact. But God promised that the darkness in the lives would be replaced by light if they would repent, if they remove the sin from their lives. The results of this repentance are listed in verse 11 and 12. Then, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. There's promise here of God for those who worship him in genuine truth, of promise of guidance, promise of satisfaction, of desires, promise of strength, promise of provision, promise of refreshment, promise of restoration. Even that the last verse, verse 12, is just continuation of this whole idea that this latter part of Isaiah is written as a word even to the Israelites who would be, who would be found in the, the period of the Babylonian captivity. Verse 12 seems to be a promise that they will be those who will return and rebuild the ancient ruins of Jerusalem and of the temple. Do you want to experience God's nearness? Do you want to have light in your life if your life is, is surrounded by darkness? Then be his light. You're surrounded in, in darkness. You want God's light? You want him to be near? Be a light for him. Be a light as believers in Christ. And here's the paradox, really. Because fake worship that observes rituals in order to get, in reality, receives nothing from God. But true worship that seeks to give of oneself, not to, give, but, not to get, but to give to others, is that which receives the blessings of God. That's what the subtle difference between fake and true worship. Increasingly, in our American society, we are privatizing religion. It kind of starts with this whole idea that religion and state need to be separated, and therefore you can't even talk about religion in any, any public realm. And you can't even talk about religion in the public sphere. You can't talk about it in the marketplace. And it becomes so that we end up responding by saying, well, it's a religion is really just a private thing. We get up and start to appeal, so well, you just keep that to yourself. And when you keep it to yourself, you say, well, it's just religion for me. It's, it's just as long as I'm good with God, it doesn't matter what other people do. It doesn't matter what happens in the world. As long as I'm right with God, that is selfish of us to think that. We cannot worship God on Sunday and then, we, then go out into our world and live as if we don't know God. Because the world needs God. 
and he sends us out there so they might know God. We do not allow our Christian faith to impact how we interact with other people that God brings into our lives in the rest of the week. That is, that is fake worship. That is not the kind of faith that God wants us to, call, to, to be practicing. Just think about how many people during the week that you meet that need God's love. So many. I like what Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote about this. I came across this in a commentary. Christian love disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of a right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city where he resides. Challenging words. And you think about that. Hopefully it's just Jonathan Edwards' words, so it's, a man, it's the words of man. But if these are consistent with what the Scriptures teaches, then may it be encouraging to you. Our lives should not be a lives that are just merely private. That we as believers in Jesus Christ who are called to love the world or love our neighbors, we should be concerned about what happens in our community. We should be as concerned what happens in our city. We should be Christians, as Christians more concerned about our city than our politicians are concerned about our city. Because we do so out of a love for God and a love for our fellow man. If we worship God out of a love for him, then let us love our neighbors out of that same love for him. Let us cease from hurting others and let us start helping others with our deeds and our words. Third subtle characteristic of fake worship that God rebukes, we find in verses 13 to 14. Fake worship delights in one's own pleasure. Delight in one's own pleasure. <coughs> we read uh, in verse 13 to 14 these words. I'll read uh, both verses. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These two verses we can break down into two parts. Uh, It's an if-then statement. First, in verse 13, the if part is the correcting of fake Sabbath worship, the correction of fake Sabbath worship, verse 13. Verse 13, the Lord turns to another aspect of Israelite worship. The element of the Sabbath, honoring the Lord on the Sabbath day, the, the, the Saturday of our week. <coughs> Excuse me. The Sabbath was even more important than the fast that the Israelites were involved in. It, the Sabbath involved many more outward rituals that God's law had prescribed for the nation of Israel. It was ordained by God for the Israelites in the Mosaic law. We saw this, or we see this in the, in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, where God instructed Israel to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. That is, this day is about the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle, your sojourn, who stays with everybody in your nation, is to do this, ought to respect this day as a Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
A Sabbath then was a day that belonged to God, that belonged to the Lord. And all Israel was to rest on that day to remember the Lord. It was a day for them to set aside so they would remember God who made them and created them. Exodus chapter 31, 16 and 17 furthermore goes to teach to the sons of Israel that this was to be a sign to them, the observance of the Sabbath was a sign to them of their Mosaic covenant. It was to be a perpetual covenant, a sign for them forever. And while the rest of the law taught many instructions about the observance of the Sabbath, the Israelites often took it further and they began devoting significant traditions as to how it was to be observed. And by Jesus' day, as you know, if you read, read your New Testament, these traditions had become so much and so prevalent that they even become greater than or being made equal to the commandments of God, which Jesus rebuked. But in Isaiah's day, the Sabbath had already been corrupted. Instead of being a day to seek the Lord, they, they made it a day of seeking their own pleasure doing the things that they wanted to do, speaking about the things that they wanted to speak about. It wasn't that they didn't outwardly practice the Sabbath. We see this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, the reference that God is tired of their Sabbath. But they made the Sabbath into a basically a necessary drudgery. They just went through the motions of it. before. It was just what they had to do before they can go and do whatever they want to do on Sunday. Oh, I mean, on the Sabbath day. They made the Sabbath basically an observance of an outward ritual so that they would feel good about themselves and then they would go on to use the rest of the day for their own sinful pleasures. It was practice without piety. It was duty without delight. It was rest without reverence. See, God calls them, calls the people of God, his people, away from all this. He says, I'm tired of these kind of Sabbaths. Don't come to me anymore with these things. Your sacrifices are odious to me. He calls them to repent and to seek his ways, to seek his word and not their ways and not their word. And if they would do this, then they would know the blessing of true Sabbath worship that we find in verse 14. They would discover joy and delight in God. You see verse 14? Here's, note what is the reward? What is the significance? Then you will take. So here's the result of observing the Sabbath, not alone, no longer according to your, for your own pleasure, but doing it for the pleasure of the Lord, to delight in it, to honor God in it, to speak God's word in it, then you will, as a result, delight in God. This is the, first, we'll stop right here, this is the highest blessing. This is the, the reward of our worship, that we would delight in God. To delight in the one who, who made them and saved them, to know him, to love him. This is our reward. See, delighting in the Lord is both our duty in worship, but it's also our desire in worship. That's what we aim for. We want to come to worship so we would know God. What's the greatest part of worship? When you know God more, right? You say, oh, I love it. Some song that we just sang, you felt really good. Oh, I love that. Not because, oh, I love this, that really, that particular note. 
I don't know music theory. But I love that particular, you know, that the drum did. I felt really good about that. I was, I was doing that. No, that's delighting yourself. But when you heard that truth about who God is, that he saves us, there's nothing that could separate us from him. What a great God we have. And that's our delight in him. And we worship him. And that's, that's the reward. The closest comparison I can think of this is, is, uh, is marriage. And it's, it's not it's even that it's imperfect because you have two sinners in marriage. But, you know, when you, uh, in marriage, you hopefully, and you look forward to spending time with your spouse on a regular basis, hopefully. Why do you do that? Because you love them. You committed to love them. And, but why do you do that? Well, what do you expect to get out of it when you spend time with your spouse? Is it because if I spend time with her, then she's going to cook more for me and make some of my favorite foods? And then, oh, yeah, she's going to you know, help me with, get, buy me some of that good-looking clothes so I will look good uh, so that you know, she'll give me that back massage when I'm feeling tight. That, that's why I'm going to spend time with her. <laughs> of course not. That, that's, of course, you know, that's, that's nice. You do so. You spend time with your spouse or your husband or your wife. Not so that they will do something for you, but it's because you would delight in them. You want to be with them. It is a joy for you to spend in them. It's a joy for you to know them. And the longer you're married, the greater that joy is. Because as you get to spend time with one another, especially when you have those conflicts, especially when you go through those battles, especially when you stumble and you sin against each other, you realize, I married a sinner, but I still love her. And she's married a sinner and she still loves me. What a wonderful blessing it is to know this partner for life. This joint heir. And you delight as you spend time with them. That's the reward of spending time with your spouse. You grow in this increasing depth of your commitment to each other. This appreciation for one another in spite of your sins. But it's even greater with God because he does not sin against us. But he sees all our sins. We're the ones sinning against him. And he loves us the same. And we delight in that. That's our, as we worship him. In a similar way, what the Israelites received from the Sabbath worship was delight in their relationship with the Lord. A joy because of the relationship with their creator of the universe. Their savior, their God. And along with that delight, they would also be exalted by God. The rest of verse 12 is how they would be exalted uh, let me read. I didn't think I read it. And I will make you ride on the heights of there, so they would be exalted by God. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. That is, they would uh, receive all the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their father. And all of this would be guaranteed to them. Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has promised it. His word is true and unbreakable. And although we who live in the New Testament age are not obligated to observe the Sabbath day, we are are called to worship him. And the substance of the Sabbath, that is Jesus Christ, is ours. And we don't have to worship in in a temple. We can worship him wherever we are. We can worship him in this building or in a cave or out in the park as long as we're worshiping together. But true worship of the Lord is one that will delight in the Lord and not ourselves. When we come to worship, do we, do we delight more in him than in ourselves? It's very subtle because 
Sometimes we come in and we, we are more excited because we're, of how we felt about ourselves, about what we got, than, what we, than who we know in God. If you worship looking for what you might get out of worship versus what you might give in worship, you are in danger of fake worship. Is the worship, your worship here focused on yourself? I know all of us come in here with various burdens and trials. And isn't it we're not asking you to simply forget all about your troubles? God knows your troubles. He cares about your troubles. And he wants to comfort you in your troubles and trials. But as you come in here, your obligation is to come in with a focus on him. To worship him. To know him because that is what will lead to the comfort in the midst of your troubles and trials. Well, these are the three subtle characteristics of fake worship. And even as we go about the, our outward rituals of worship, I'm about to close in prayer soon. And you're all going to bow your heads and close your eyes. Even as I dismiss you and you go off and I say, let's uh, encourage you to go to Sunday school. And you go and sit in your Sunday school class today. Or as you talk, speak to one another in the pews as, or in the chairs as you're dismissed. As we go about our outward rituals of our worship day, let's be careful not to fall into fake worship. It is really subtle. It's very easy to fall into. See, fake worship isn't just worshiping idols at home or holding to false doctrine. It's much more subtle as we've seen today. It's the subtle difference between practicing outward rituals to receive God's blessings versus practicing outward rituals because of God's blessings. It's the subtle difference between loving God alone versus loving God and your neighbors and others. It's the subtle difference between valuing one's own pleasure in worship versus the Lord's pleasure in worship. May we examine our hearts and that the Lord would uh, cause us to rejoice and to, to re- because of he reveals sin in our lives that we need to correct or that we would examine and find ourselves that we are walking as we ought, that we continue to praise God because we've gathered today, we've heard his word, and we've learned more about the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. Most importantly, though, none of us could worship him in this way, the way he seeks, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you have not yet believed in Christ, know that Christ has made a way for you to worship him, worship God, through dying on the cross for your sins. And he died for you so that you who turn from your ways and turn to his ways might be able to know your creator, your maker, your savior. Delight in him as you worship him for the rest of your days. Let's pray. Jesus... Father, thank you for making us possible that we might worship you. Thank you that you are a God who seeks after worshipers. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege to worship you this morning. We pray that you would cause us to examine our worship, even as we go about the, the activities of our worship today. May our worship be data which is true and genuine. May it be a truly out of a love for you, 
may be truly uh, uh, that which rests upon the finished work of Christ on the cross and not on what we do. May our worship be uh, that, which resp- uh, that which manifests out of a genuine love for you that loves our fellow saints and goes out in the world and loves our fellow men and women. Father, cause us to examine even our own hearts as we worship this morning, that we did not worship with a focus on self, but instead a focus on you. For Lord, you are our greatest delight. It is our joy and our privilege to know you more each and every day and each and every week when we gather. Thank you for this time. Help us to go forth into this world to tell others about you, our great God, who is seeking worshipers such as we learned about this morning. To worship in spirit and truth. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Please uh, exit out. You're, if you are my right, then you're left. Head on out to Sunday school class. If you will have it around 930 down below on the floor below us.